With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and mature in the body, putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of God. Each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, good morning. <laughs> Jump the gun, a little eager here in the front row. Uh, looks like fall hit us finally, I guess. Well, here it is. So welcome to fall, and uh, it's good to have you here this morning. Some of you who normally come to the later service, it's good to see you. There must be an early game today. I'm just, just guessing on that one. Hey, those of you in Skagit, so glad that you're with us today with Pastor Brian, and I'm really looking forward to being with you tonight for the Inside Cornwall class. I know there's about 20 of you that'll be joining me for that. Can't wait for that. Those of you down in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God, as always, we love you. We're praying for you and glad you're with us. And uh, those of you at the Auburn uh, Church at Crossway, and for Chris and Katie and the gang down in Belize at San Pedro, so good to have you with us, as well as those who are watching online with our live stream today as we finish up our series. For the last three months, we've been looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of people that he loved, a church, uh, the church in Ephesus. And this letter was probably, as we discovered, not only directed to the church in Ephesus, but to the other churches. So there were some universal principles that weren't just specific to one church, but to the church. And so our approach to this letter has been that it wasn't just a document that was written 2,000 years ago to a bunch of people who are now dead, but this is a letter that is written, written to the church, including Cornwall Church in 2019, and this is for us as well. And we spent three months going through this. We got to the end of that letter last week when Paul concludes, and I'm giving you a little time because I'm gonna give you a quiz here. When Paul concludes with this last phrase, last statement of the whole letter, grace to those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with, with an undying love. I'm impressed that you remembered that. that was, that's amazing. That, that, that you would love Jesus with an undying love. And then we went beyond the letter to see another letter they got 30 years later, this time a letter from Jesus that kind of gave them a, a, a report card on, on how they were doing. I mentioned last week that I made an arbitrary decision several weeks back because there is so much to cover in this book, so much we had to skim over. There was so much left on the editing room floor that I felt like there's, a, there's some things we need to, to revisit. That's why this sermon's called Appendix. It has nothing to do with any body parts. It's like the, the piece at the end of the book that's added on. This is uh, going back to the editing room floor, picking up some pieces that got cut, not because they weren't important. That's not it. 
uh, but because of time that, and there were some things I just thought, man, we have, to, we have to hit these before we leave this book. And so when I started brainstorming this idea, when I decided this a few weeks ago, I just kind of did a cursory walk through the book and what are the areas that we didn't hit strong enough? What are the areas that we could go back and, and uh, would have some good substance to us? And I came up with nine different pieces and I thought, wow, I cannot do that. I can't do a nine-point sermon. It, it, and, and so then I narrowed it down, and I thought, what if we just did like one from each chapter? There's six chapters, and I'm thinking, that's still too long. It's going to be the world's longest sermon, or we just barely touch on things. So I refined it down again to two, uh, two things. And, and to, today's sermon really is like part one, part two, and they're not like, they don't just real flow well. There's going to be a point about 15 minutes from now where we're going to shift without a clutch and make a hard left. So just hang with me on that. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to look at these, these two things. Four weeks ago, when I made a major edit in my sermon, even on the Saturday morning going into it, there was uh, some stuff that we had to just skim over. And one of them was this uh, powerful verse out of Ephesians 5 that says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And that's kind of this essence of who we are in Christ, what he's done, all these things, this... this um, a glorious riches in Christ, this mystery of the gospel, that we were once dead in our sins, but we're alive in Christ. We were once dark, but now we are light in the Lord. And then there's, in the middle of this verse, there's like this shift. In the 70s, um, a very, very brilliant man named uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book uh, entitled, How, uh, How Then Shall We, How Shall We Then Live? It's kind of Yoda speak. How then shall we live? How shall we then live? It doesn't matter. In the 90s, in the 90s, Chuck Colson did kind of a follow-up called How Now Shall We Live? So I figured that one out. But he kind of does that with, with this reality that you are darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. How now shall we live? He says, so live as children of light. Now, this is a powerful, powerful verse, and we could spend the rest of our time just on this verse. But the reason I bring this up is because this verse just um, structurally is a microcosm of the entire letter of Ephesians. Uh, again, if you've been with us, you know that the, the, this letter is broken into two very distinctive parts, chapters one through three, and then chapters four through six. And, and just like this verse is broken into kind of this part and this part, they represent these two sections. In Ephesians, that first three chapters are these theological truths, and then the four through six are these practical applications. Chapters one through three talks about this theological truth about how we were we were dead in our transgressions. That, that's your blanks, by the way. Theological, I think it is, isn't it? Is that where we're not, not, not there? Oh, well. There it is, there, I, I thought so. That there's this theological truth of who we are in Christ and all that. And then in, in chapter uh, four, he shifts gears. He says, so now with that in mind, this then is, is how we live. What I wanna do in these two pieces of today is that I wanna take one of the things that got in the editing room floor out of Chapter one, out of this first section, a theological truth, it came, got cut out of, of week two in the series, and then one out of chapter five that got cut out of uh, week 10, a very practical application. I'll say this, these two little pieces that we're gonna look at, I think if you grasp them, if they grasp you, it will change you for the rest of your life. I'm saying not because of the messenger, but because of the words of God's word, they are so profound and so simple and so practical for the rest of your life, these two truths will, will, do, uh, will serve you well if you grab a hold of them. 
The first one is a theological truth for those of us who are followers after Christ. The second one is a practical application that applies to every single one of us in this room, watching online, at any of the, the, the different sites around. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, young, old. It doesn't even matter if you're a Christian or not. If you will look at this, this is a practical application of God's word that applies to you, even if you don't believe in God. So stay tuned for that. If you're here, you're saying, man, I just, I'm just kind of biding my time until we can get out of here and go to lunch or watch the game, what have you. Hang in there with that. So, um, so we're going to look at, at these two things, and uh, we'll get right into it. Um, I will say this. The first one, with the reality uh, in him, the first one is, um, is a theme of a book that I was introduced to. I, I started hearing about this book about a year and a half, two years ago, and then about a year ago, someone gave me this book. It's called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn, and the whole theme of this book is this reality of who we are in Christ, in him. And I'll say that today in, in these next 10, 12 minutes, I'm only gonna be able to just kind of scratch the surface of this. If you want the full treatise on this, um, the Bible's a good place to start, but this is a really good book as well. If you wanna say, I wanna learn more about that. How does that play out in my life? I will say this about the book, this one. This isn't one of those ones that you just read on the, on the elliptical and say, oh, that was good and move on. I'm on my third time through it. I read it through once, then I kind of slowed down, read it through it, and now this third time, there's some guys that I'm meeting with, we're reading it, discussing it. Um, so it, it's something to chew on and to wrestle with, but it's, it's really profound. So if you're interested in going a little further, that's a book that I would recommend. In the introduction of that book, John Ortberg writes the introduction. He makes this statement. In the New Testament, the word, literal word Christian, only happens three times. But in Paul's writings, he uses this phrase, in Christ, 165 times. We use the word Christian all the time, but maybe there's this, this other part of this phrase of, of in him, in Christ. And Paul, no, no, uh, no difference in the letter in, in, to the Ephesians, he starts off this way. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful, in Christ Jesus. That whole deal. Now what's amazing is he's talking about this is where they live, this is how they live. This is their geographical reality, their geographical standing. This is their spiritual reality and their spiritual standing. Isn't that profound? Yeah, yeah about the response I expected. Because here's the deal. For many of us, we're like, well, yeah, yeah, Bob, we, we get that. Because a lot of us grew up in church or we went to youth camp or Awana or VBS or any other initials you can come up with. And we went to these things. And, and some of us, we, we heard about it and we prayed the sinner's prayer and asked Jesus into our heart. It was around the campfire the last night of camp and we were all crying and we asked Jesus into our heart. Or maybe it was at a meeting and they sang, just as I am, and it was on the 14th verse. And really, you weren't interested in heaven. You just like wanted to get out of the service. You know the guy would not stop until someone came forward and so all of the saints thanked you for going and becoming a Christian. And there was great rejoicing in heaven, not because your soul was saved, but because the song's over. <laughs> Just kidding. But, but we know about this, and, and we pray, and we ask Jesus into our heart, and yeah, and Jesus comes in, and he forgives our sins, and he gives us a place in heaven. And that's profound, but we're familiar with it. And the danger is, while we wouldn't necessarily articulate it this way, the danger is we hear about that sinner's prayer begging you, you know, invite Jesus into your heart, kind of like we feel sorry for this homeless Messiah. He needs a place to stay because you just open up your heart at least for a little bit. The danger is we get this idea that we are doing Jesus this incredible favor by subletting him a room in our heart. That now, okay, yeah, Jesus, you can dwell there. You can hang out in there, and, that, and that's good. Oh, and by the way, yeah, I'll get heaven. That's thrown in. That's kind of cool. And we reduce Jesus down 
to this occupant of this room in our lives. And sometimes, let me use a visual here, sometimes we reduce him down to this Jesus. This little Jesus on a keychain. Here's the nice thing. We say, yeah, 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 oh yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah, I've got him. And, and the good thing about this Jesus is he's kind of like a good luck charm. You know, yeah, we, we got Jesus in our life. That's a good thing. And occasionally, if we need some, some direction, he gives us light. That's good. And what Jesus is really, really most important for is when we lose our keys, we can pray, Jesus, where are the keys? And he's attached to them. It's all a good thing. And we reduce Jesus down to this. We just like, you know, with Justin Timberlake, got that Jesus in my pocket, got that good soul in my feet. You know, yeah, I'm good to go because I can always find my keys. And we reduce him down to just this little piece of our life. So when Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, he says, don't reduce Jesus down. Don't put him on a keychain. Don't just put him in your pocket. Don't just give him a little room of your life. We're talking about Jesus and the centrality of Christ. So in the start of this letter, he just points this out in verse one. Grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse five, we were predestined and we were adopted through Jesus Christ. Verse six, the glorious grace freely given us in the one he loves. Verse nine, his will, God's will, which he purposed in Christ. It's amazing that, that we see this. And so now when we begin to grasp the eternal nature of, of Jesus and that, yes, we invite him, we ask him to come into our heart, but it's not us being the landlords for a little tenant named Jesus that we keep in our pocket. This is the Lord Almighty. Now, I don't want to get caught up on semantics and high-centered on things, but I, I think, and this is kind of where we get some of this out of this, well, out of the Bible, but uh, Wilborn uh, refers to this. It's kind of a shift in paradigm a little bit for us. Yes, Jesus, we invite him, and Jesus is in us. But look what Paul also says. You remember in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, is one continuous run-on sentence in the original. Right? He just goes. But look what he refers to again and again. The saints, the faithful, in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've, he chose us in him. In him we have redemption. In him we were chosen. We're included in Christ. You were marked in him with a seal. You see a kind of recurring pattern there? It's not just Jesus being in us. It's us being in him. You're saying, yeah, Bob, it's kind of the same thing. Kind of, yes, but maybe in a mindset, it would be helpful for us to, instead of always thinking, well, I've got Jesus in me, which is true, to see ourselves as being in Christ. Let me give you a, maybe a really poor illustration that you'll remember the rest of your lives. <laughs> got a bag. Anyone recognize this bag? Oh, no, not at all. Good. Taco Bell. In this bag, I have a, a bean burrito that I bought yesterday. Got a bean burrito. Now... <laughs> Here's what I'm trying to illustrate. There's an enormous difference between having a burrito in me and me being in a burrito. There's a big, big difference there. For me to have the burrito in me, I simply ingest the burrito and then it's in me. For me to be a part of a burrito, I am enveloped by burrito grande mucho supremo that now I'm enveloped in the burrito. Now, okay, bad illustration, I know, but sometimes we just see Jesus as the burrito in us 
instead of recognizing that our life is enveloped in Christ. And when we begin to see that we are in Christ, then it's not just us subletting a room to Jesus, it's allowing Jesus to come and completely surround. I am surrounded in him. That's why scripture talks about being baptized into Christ, that full immersion that we are completely surrounded with Jesus. Now my life, my thoughts, my priorities, everything is in Christ, not just someone to help me find my keys occasionally. Does that make sense? So with that, just the very nature of it is that when I'm in Christ, then now I'm in something bigger, something better, something more beautiful, something more eternal than just my deal. And it's, it's, it's where I, I am united with Christ. It's for, for all, all of us when we understand this, that our solidarity is with Christ. And so instead of just reducing Jesus to say, Jesus, bless my life, bless my plan, bless my kingdom, Jesus said, I invite and include you, allow you to join in my life, in my plan, in my kingdom, and Jesus joins himself to us. Do you see the shift in the paradigm, the thinking there? So this, yeah, we're doing this favor for Jesus, and we got him a little spot in our heart. He says, no, 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 you are invited to be consumed and surrounded, enveloped in me, that you are enfolded into my life and to live our lives in that reality. Later in this uh, chapter one, verse 13, he says, uh, oh yeah, John Murray uh, gives this quote, nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ, the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. In, in uh, chapter one, verse 13, it says, and you also were included, here it is, in Christ when you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit. Now, honestly, this kind of goes into a whole other sermon, uh, this whole marked with the seal, marked with the whole, the promised Holy Spirit. He hits this again in chapter four, verse 30, where, where he talks about you've been sealed uh, for the, with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And what is that all about? Our solidarity is with Christ and our identity is with the Spirit. Um, Ron wrote the, a song that uh, on the bridge uh, it was based on the book of Ephesians. In the bridge, it says, marked with a seal, I'm not my own. I can boldly stand before the throne. And so I went, I went into his office. I said, Mark, uh, Ron, Mark, Mark is a different guy. He wrote a, a gospel. Um, Ron wrote a song. Uh, so I said, Ron, the bridge, marked with a seal, I'm not my own. I, I love that. Obviously, it comes out of Ephesians. Why did you include that? He said, I just think when you begin to understand that we, we're marked, we're, we've got this seal, the seal of approval, not because of who we are and not because of what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and because of who we are in him. That we've got this seal of approval and with that seal, which is the Holy Spirit, we can enter boldly into the throne room of God, as it says in Hebrews. And I begin to think that it's absolutely right that the Holy Spirit is like the lanyard that's the all access pass because of who I am in Christ and because of my identity with the Holy Spirit. Now I have access to come right into the very presence of the holy immortal God because of who I am. In Christ. Now, I need to move on. If you want further treatise to that, I would point you to this book, Union with Christ, an amazing book. Not the easiest book to read, but I think you could handle it. All right, can we shift gears without a clutch? Now we're going to move to chapter five with a very, very practical application, and this is our choices in life. And, and this, is, this is the thing where you just see how God's wisdom is, is so amazing. Um, what I'm going to uh, spend the next 15 minutes on 
is something that really I, I did a whole series on eight and a half years ago. Now, and I just felt like it was so important, especially like at the beginning of the school year, starting of the fall, kind of the new beginning, that we revisit this. Some of you will remember this. Um, it, it is, on the one hand, very, very simple, but it is so profound. And it has to do with how we make choices in life, especially, but not exclusively, especially for those of us who are in Christ, how do we then live in such a way that is, is honoring and glorifying to him? So chapter five, uh, verse 15, we read these words, be very careful. And, and I can never read this verse without hearing Elmer Fudd. <laughs> be very careful. <laughs> Go hunting wabbits. All right. Um, so sorry, I just ruined the Bible for some of you. All right. So be very careful, be, be mindful, be intentional, and give, give some thought to this. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And then two verses later, in verse 17, he would say, therefore, do not be foolish. Any of you who are parents, this is what you want for your children, isn't it? You want them to make wise decisions. You don't want them to do foolish things. You want them to be wise in their friendships, in, their, in what they do for their entertainment, what they fill their mind with, in their relationships. You want them wise in their money. You, you want this for your children. The reality is, you should want this for anyone you care about. Whether it's a spouse or a neighbor or a friend, a small group a member, a, a boss, a coworker, you would want this for them. And hopefully you want this for yourself. I just want to see a show of hands, and there's really only four people that, that don't get to participate in this. Skagit, Pastor Brian does not get to participate in this, all right? Auburn, Tiger Stumbo does not get to, Boca, Jim Burns is out on this one, and uh, in uh, Belize, Chris Henry, you guys are out. I'm going to participate for you four guys, because I know you well enough. Here's, here's the deal, show of hands. How many of you have ever done anything in your life that could be considered unwise or foolish? Go ahead. Now, I'm going to raise my hand for those four guys. Okay, all right. <laughs> All right, that's pretty much every single one of us. And the one who didn't raise your hand, you lie. All right. We've all done that. And sometimes it results with the consequence of embarrassment and people razzing us about it for the rest of our lives. Sometimes it's, uh, it's some deep wounds and pain and scars. It's those moments where you're like, oh, what was I thinking? Come on, man. It's the ultimate Homer Simpson moment. Oh, you know, it's like, what were you thinking on that? And while there are some consequences that may follow us or some embarrassment that we live with, you know what's the worst? It's because of our choices that are unwise and foolish when it impacts and has ripple effect on those that we love. Our kids, our spouse, our family, our church, whatever it might be. And we have these things in our life. Sage wisdom from Solomon out of the book of Proverbs, he said, the way of a fool seems right to him but a wise man listens to advice. See, here's the deal. For most of us, when we made those unwise choices, when we did those foolish things, in the moment, it probably seemed right. I mean, you're probably thinking, what's not to love about this? It's a timeshare. <laughs> you're probably thinking, let's all get tattoos and remember this moment forever. At the time, it didn't seem to be so foolish. It seemed like the right thing. You know, at the time, he seemed like a real nice guy. That's why I went home with that. At the time, she didn't seem psycho. That's why, you know, all whatever it might have been. At the time, it seemed like it was a right thing. And in the midst of all that, even in the times sometimes when it doesn't seem quite right, we try to make it that way. 
And I wonder how much time, how much energy, how much effort we put in to trying to make the decision right rather than making the right decision. We, we try to, to justify it. We try to rationalize it. We, we try to excuse it. We try to explain it. We try to, to convince ourselves or others that it's right. We, we, we try to defend it. We get into those moments where we're, where we're fighting for it and, and, and there's, there's all these justifications, you know, the, the FOMO argument or the, the YOLO argument or everybody else argument. Or, or there, here's the good one, God will always forgive me argument. You know, or, well, it's just this once. Or, well, I deserve. And, and we try to make the decision right instead of making the right decision. And I'm wondering in these moments in life, do we have any kind of grid, any kind of filter, any kind of thing that we pass these decisions through? Sometimes we don't even think about it. It's just like, well, this feels good. This seems right. Let's just go do it. Are there any questions that we ask that would help us make better decisions so there's less regret, less pain, less remorse on the other side of it? And there's an author um, who refers to the best question ever. See, it's good to have these questions. He refers to the best question ever. And it comes right out of this uh, verse out of Ephesians chapter five. Now there's a lot of questions we can ask and there's some good questions. When you're up against a decision, should I do this, should I not? A question that you might ask is, well, is it a sin? That's not a bad question to ask, that's a, that's a good question. I wouldn't say that's the best question, it's a good question and don't hear me out. I want us to know what is sinful behavior and to avoid that, but I don't think that's the best question because the reality is there are some things that are not technically a sin, they're just stupid, all right? I mean, think about this. I can empty out my entire retirement account and invest it all in apple fritters. Technically, that's not a sin, just stupid. So asking, is it a sin? Good question, not the best question. Or maybe asking, well, well what does the Bible say about this? That's a good question too, hear me out. I'm not saying don't read the Bible or don't follow instructions out of it. That's a good question. But there's a lot of things, especially specifics, that the Bible never addresses. Let me give you an, an, an one that's way out there. You're deciding, should I use meth or not? I just wanna say, the Bible never ever specifically addresses meth. Unless it's Methuselah, and that's a different thing, but he died with no teeth too. Okay, so anyway. And, 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 the, the reality is this. Is that you can find scriptures sometimes to justify things that you really shouldn't do. You can find those. I mean, W.C. Fields on his deathbed was reading the Bible and they asked him, well, you know, this was so out of character, and they said, what are you doing? He says, searching for loopholes. Uh, you can find <laughs> loopholes. Uh, you know, asking, is it, what does the Bible say? That's a good question. It's not the best question. Another question that sometimes people ask is, well, will this send me to hell? <laughs> wow. Okay, it depends on your theology on that one. But if that's the only grid that you're passing your decisions through, you're either making some big sin decisions or you've got this idea that you can go to hell just you know, looking sideways. That, that maybe, that, maybe that's a good question, I don't know, but, but it's not the best question. So, okay, okay. well, let, let's move on from there then. How, how about this one? Will I get caught? As your pastor, if that is the question you use for your decision, whatever you're trying to decide on doing, don't do it. I don't even need to know the details, but if your big deciding factor is will I get caught, you should not be doing that. Here's another one that you, people use as their filter. Is it legal? 
Now we start justifying, well, I'm 18 now. Well, I'm 21 now. Well, I live in Washington. Is it legal? Okay, it's, it's, it's a good place. I mean, we want you to be law-abiding citizens. That's a good place to start. That's a good question. It's not the best question. I mean, and think about this. Do you allow the government to set the level of the bar for your life and decisions? I mean, you know what laws do? Laws are there as the bare minimum requirement to keep you out of jail. That sets the bar pretty low. We're just trying to keep you out of jail, just be a good law-abiding citizen. Let me, let me illustrate this because I really thought, because a lot of people say, well, it's legal, it's legal, it's legal. Let me just point this, I've worked on this, okay. Here's the truth about me, hypothetically. I wanna make sure I get that in. I can be a prideful, rude, selfish, vulgar, crass, lust-filled, perverted, immoral, adulterous, judgmental, bigoted, racist, who is angry, hateful, bitter, petty, vengeful, cantankerous, jealous, and covetous. I can be narcissistic, controlling, intimidating, man, uh, manipulative, divisive, cruel, a hedonistic, drunken, glutton, reprobate, who is uh, greedy, materialistic, and high maintenance. I can even be a Satan-worshipping lover of cats and never once break a law. I can do all of that and still be a law-abiding citizen because there is nothing in the law against any of that. Though some of there, I wish there was, that whole lover of cats piece, I wish there was a law. I can do all of that. So this idea of, well, you know, if it don't send me to jail and it don't send me to hell, then all is well. That's about as backwoods as that accent. Are you kidding me? Is that your filter? What are the questions that you ask? Well, is it culturally acceptable? Well, there is a filter. Well, but what would my parents think? Well, that's a good one, but it's not the best. What would my friends think? Well, what would my, is my spouse okay with that? All of these are good questions they're not the best questions. And sometimes those questions we use to justify things we should not, a way that we should not live. Paul um, plants a church in Corinth. Corinth is this, oh, hedonistic, out of control, paganistic, uh, sensual city, self-centered, just very ungodly city. And people come to find about the truth of Jesus. And they're transformed by his grace, by his forgiveness, and by the freedom that he brings. And apparently, because of this teaching about the forgiveness of Christ, what he's done on the cross for us, that now we are free in Christ, that there, there became this phrase that was apparently used in the church in Corinth that was used a lot. Maybe it was used in the culture, but in the church, they used it, and they used it to justify some lifestyle that was not God-honoring. And Paul points this out when he writes a letter to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and here's his phrase that they use, everything is permissible. Apparently this was kind of their, their, little, their little card, they could just throw that down. Well, everything's permissible. Jesus already died on the cross for me, I'm forgiven, I'm, I've got grace and I'm free in him, so everything is permissible. Paul says, you know, you use that phrase, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Like maybe you ought to have a different filter beyond just what is permissible. It's like I tell my neighbor, Dwayne, he has a swimming pool, and every time he swims in his speedos, I say, Dwayne, just because you can doesn't mean you should. It might be permissible, but man, it's awful. And there are things in our life we do this, so we need to ask the best question ever. And the best question ever, and the one who, who, who coined that phrase, uh, Andy Stanley, the best question ever is, what is the wise 
thing? What is the wise thing? What is the wise thing for me? What is the wise thing with, with my past, with my propensities, with my history? What's the wise thing for me? What's the wise thing in my current situation, my current reality? What's the wise thing? What's the wise thing when I think about where I want to be, what I want this to look like? And all this? What is the wise thing? So you can ask the other questions. They're good. But the best question is, what is the wise thing? Is it a sin? Even if it's not, is it the wise thing? Does the Bible speak to it? Even if it doesn't, is it the wise thing? Will I go to hell? Even if you don't, is it the wise thing? Is it legal? Even if it is, is it the wise thing? To come back to this, is the culture accepting it? Even if they do, is it the wise thing? Are my parents okay with it? Are my spouse okay? Even if they are, is it the wise thing? Will I get caught? Even if you don't, is it the wise thing? So, uh, so when God speaks to his people, Israel, through the prophet Jeremiah, he says this. That's what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. These decision points. Ask for the ancient past. Ask where the good way is. What's the wise thing? What should I do at this intersection? And walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not. I'm going to justify, going to rationalize, going to convince, going to excuse it, going to go my own way, going to do my own thing. Now, on, on this one, um, Andy Stanley's book, Ask It, uh, takes this, and this is a book that is so practical. This one, you don't have to like think about a whole lot. I mean, it is just so straightforward. This is a book, honestly, if my daughters were still in middle school and high school, we as a family would read through this together. We would take it a chapter at a time. I would pay my children to read this book. Uh, we would discuss it. We would live our lives according. This is amazing. Um, I, I wish all of our college students would take this principle and apply it to their lives uh, if you want to take it a little bit further, uh, ask it. It was formally um, released as the best question ever. was the original name of the book, but it's been re-released as Ask It. So Paul comes along, and he says this in Ephesians 5. Be very careful. We're talking about your life. You only get one of them. Be very careful, very intentional, very aware of how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Understand what God would have you to do. See, in this, in this letter that he writes, he spends, and we spend, half of our, our series looking at all these truths about how we've been accepted, how we've been adopted, how we've been redeemed, how we went from darkness to light, from death to life, how we uh, are, are to, to have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. All of that happened. And then in the second half, he says, with that in mind, this is how you should live. And the hinge point came in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Because of who you are in Christ, this then is how we live. And one of the ways when we're unsure about that is to come back to this very simple but profound question, what is the wise thing? What should I do in this situation? He reiterates that again in, in Ephesians 5. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live, because of that, live as children of light. That our life and the way that we live, that who we are, that all of it conforms 
to who we are, our identity in Christ. And by doing so, it confirms our identity in Christ. That our life is shaped not by our culture, not even by our own thoughts, but by who we are in Christ. And as we live that, it confirms the reality that we already live in, that we are redeemed. We are sons, we are daughters of the Most High God, living a life that honors and glorifies Him. And, and I just thought, before we left this, this study on Ephesians, what if we began to shift our mindset about this whole concept of not just, yeah, Jesus has got this little spot in my heart, but my whole life is enfolded in and enveloped in Christ. And he joins his life with me and invites me into his life and his kingdom and his purposes. And in living that life out, if we could hold on to this simple question in those decisions where, where we don't want to live with a, a lot of regret, we don't want a lot of shame, we don't, we, don't, we don't want to hurt ourselves and others in the process, to ask this question again and again, what's the wise thing? For me, not what anyone else does, for me, with my past, with where I am currently, with what I want someday, with all of that, what's the wise thing for me? All right, one more little verse I want to just give you in closing. Won't even discuss it, but it was such a beautiful verse, and we didn't even have the chance to even look at it. It's a verse that most commentators believe was a portion of a hymn that the early church sang. And most believe it was a hymn that people who were being baptized sang because it kind of just spoke to this reality of, of what they were getting ready to do in baptism, uh, which is such a beautiful thing, to be baptized, buried in Christ, and to be brought up in new creation. And it, it's, it's found, um, and it's just such a, a great, maybe a, a great closing word for us when we look into God's word and see what it says. And this hymn line said this, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Don't snooze your way through life. Don't be foolish, don't be unwise. Wake up, rise from the dead, you are alive in Christ. You are light in the Lord, and Christ will shine on you. I hope you know who you are in Christ, and because of that, I hope you will approach life asking, What's the wise thing for me that would honor God?